Hello and welcome back to Talks with the Feminine. I'm Annie Taylor and I'm very glad to be back and recording a new episode. I'm sorry it's been quite a long time between episodes. There were some technical issues that I was facing with a couple of recording sessions and also just life. Life got in the way so I'm very happy that I get to be back now and recording a new episode and I'm particularly delighted because um, on today's episode I'm talking with Kate Hoskin who is a very dear friend of mine and um, who is just the most amazing mother and nurse and a really strong advocate for uh, her patients and for herself and it's quite she's quite amazing um, and I felt really quite blessed to speak with her and um, allow her to kind of explore her own journey over the last well over her life but particularly over the last few years um, today she really goes into detail about how nursing and education and motherhood and and birth as well have really shaped who she's become as a person and yeah it, I can't really understate um how psyched I was <laughs> to have this interview and afterward I just you know I had goosebumps so I thought you know it's just she's so wonderful to talk to and she currently is uh sort of extending on her own business which is called Patient Advocacy Plus if you want to Google that one where she is acting as a really strong advocate for those navigating the health system and she's going to be expanding that into health-based education services as well. So have a look and have a listen and enjoy her really super inspiring story. Hi Kate. How are you going? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad we're finally talking. It's very good. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, it is good. Um, yeah, it's sort of, it's been a bit of a break between episodes for me too. So I'm like, yeah. Hey. I'm glad you Back agreed to come on. Yeah, well, yes, yes. There were some technical issues in the middle, but, you know, it'll be fine. Um, so I'm going to just jump right in. I mean, I've known you for a few years now, which is really cool. Mm. But um, I don't know. I don't know much about where you, I know you and I grew up at around the same time. But mm. um, where where did you grow up? Where were you originally? I'm in the Dandenong Ranges. Oh, so, so you've been there forever. Yeah. Yeah, forever. Yeah. yeah. So we grew up in the foothills. So my family's in Selby. Um, when I went to school in like Menzies Creek and Emerald and then now I live with my family in Mount Dandenong right on top of the mountain so yeah how cool I love the mountain yeah yeah well you haven't left that's a good no. sign <laughs> well we left for a bit and then we came back so yeah 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 oh yeah oh how'd you find the 90s um I don't even remember <laughs> that was high school yeah <laughs> Oh, I feel like, I don't know, some of it. <laughs> I feel like I was in high school in the 2000s. I'm trying mm, to remember. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was late nineties, early two thousand. Yeah, but um, I just remember the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, I love them. I still <laughs> love them. <laughs> you think you had a good childhood? Full of Backstreet Boys. Ah, I don't think I was aware of anything different at the time. I think I've I've got a lot of a lot of opinions and thoughts about it these days. But um, no, in in the biggest scheme of things, yeah, we were, I had a pretty a pretty good childhood. I had two beautiful sisters, both my parents. So yeah, yeah, yeah. On the face of it, it's always good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what shall I go? Well, I always ask everybody this: How was school for you? How did you find? primary school oh fuck um yeah um primary school great fabulous had a great bunch of friends and all that fell apart during high school (laughs) yeah Um, what happened tell us your story I I really struggled in high school um I just had trouble with friendship groups so um I came into school with um you know a whole bunch of girlfriends from primary school which were great um, and then I wanted to spread my wings and make new friends and meet new people. Mm. Um, and that ended up becoming a bit of a challenging and maybe a bit of my undoing. I don't know. Um, because then I sort of ended up just being a third wheel everywhere I went. And mm. I was a lot of bullying, um, a lot of, you know, just teenage bitchiness and, um, yeah, I had a really hard time and I ended up having, having to do a lot of work after high school yeah, <laughs> to, um, you know, come not come to terms with it, like, I don't know, but just it had it had a significant impact in who I became after high school. Um, and so, yeah, but I always, I really struggled with making friends with girls. Well, like not making friends with girls. I really struggled with being judged by girls. And um, so I always had a boyfriend because they were easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm still still married to my high school sweetheart now. So Simon and I have been yeah. together since I was 15. So that was probably one of the more positive aspects of my high school yeah. experience. Um, but it was like a safe place to have just one person to be with, I guess, Um but yeah, no, I didn't didn't love high school. Not no. even a little bit. Yeah. Did you I mostly struggle socially or did you find that impacted your kind of I guess academic side of things at school as well? Academics was never a problem for me. I really was excelled academically. Um it's something that's a strength of mine. I learn really well, I remember really well, and you know, so that was never a problem. Maybe it was part of the cause of my problem, who knows? <laughs> but um <laughs> Um, yeah, so the school work side of things, never a problem for me. In fact, I was probably a bit lazy about it because I didn't have to try very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, like, yeah, the, the social side of things never really impacted my schoolwork. Um, but, were, yeah. were you at a co-ed school or were you? Yeah, yeah. yeah public school, yeah. Oh. But you still, um, so, but it was mostly girls that you had trouble with did you sort of because if there were boys there did they you, you said you always had a boyfriend did you associate with boys much or was it still pretty girl um well that's the thing because I got along well with boys um I was judged for that I got called a lot of nasty names about oh. being hanging out with boys even teachers would give me a hard time for sitting next to a boy in class I remember having one 
dick face of a high school teacher asking me, why do you always sit with the boys? You're a girl, you know, and really like making me feel like it was not okay. Mm. And I was like, well, the girls are nasty to me. Who am I supposed to sit with by myself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Not a great culture then. No, of, no, no, it really, and I still to this day carry with me difficulty in having friendships with men because I'm always like oh if I talk to a boy I'm going to be called a slut kind of thing yeah so I really still yeah. struggle with that um and try really hard to be it's okay to talk to boys you yes. know <laughs> um and but again I've struggled a lot with trusting women and so part of you know how how women coming to women's circle and stuff was a real breaking down of that for me so um learning to trust and love women again was a really big thing for me so yeah do you feel like the the experience of high school even though you felt isolated from other girls like do you think that part of the problem was that you kind of like I guess had that magnetic pull to be around them but you then Mm. couldn't is that an element of it do you think You know, I think I have this story that I tell myself, you know, that whole too much thing? Yeah. That women can't be too much. And because I was smart and because I was pretty and because I was kind, I don't know if that's just me talking shit to myself, but I feel like, you know, part of what I carry with me from that experience is don't be too many things like don't be too successful don't be too smart don't be you know because that was always a negative like oh you're so smart or she's pretty can't you give the rest of us a chance or the boys like her or you know that kind of thing Mm. so really I don't know yeah yeah I get it yeah Um, yeah I got this story about don't be too successful or don't be too because that will attract a negative response from people so yeah yeah I kind of get that I mean yeah. yeah I suppose it's just a cultural thing where we've all been taught to squash each other and then you have to relearn yeah. how to be like she is smart and pretty and amazing I, love <laughs> <her."> <laughs> I just it's something that I really seek out now like you know it was a real problem in my previous workplace the culture of tearing each other down and I was like I can't be a part of this anymore I just want to be involved with people who want the best for each other people who support and see other people's success or brilliance and seek to empower and help them grow that or take them for the the journey of their success or build them up and celebrate them rather than well, she's doing better than me, so fuck her. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty mm. awesome um, that you kind of have become cognizant of that whole, mm. um, yeah, problem, I guess. Um, yeah. So that brings me to after high school, did you, I mean, you said you already had partnered up with your now husband, but mm. um you went into, did you immediately move into nursing? Did you like yeah. in terms of study? And interesting that you chose a pretty female dominated industry after that <laughs> experience. 
See, I had, I didn't even think about it. Like I knew at school I enjoyed health, that health and whatever the subject you was. And I loved learning about um, sustainable health care and health promotion. So I was like, oh, I want to be, I want to do health promotion when I go to uni. And I sat down with the careers advisor and, you know, you had the little book with what the scores you had to get to get yeah. each course <laughs> or whatever. And like yeah. I said, I was quite lazy about my schoolwork um, and you had to get like an enter of 70 or something to get into health promotion. I was like, oh, I can do better than that. So I went down the list and it was like, oh, you have to get 80 something to do health promotion and nursing. I'll do that. Yeah, because I can do that. I can achieve that. <laughs> and that was my yeah. thought process into going into a nursing degree. Oh, um, fair enough. um and then yeah when when I got there um I think by second year I realized that actually health promotion is all behind a desk and you have to get unobtainable experience before you get a job um and because I was doing the nursing part as well I'd had a few clinical placements in acute care settings and I was like oh this is fun and I really love the science of it and all that sort of thing so by my third year, I dropped the health promotion and just finished the Bachelor of Nursing. So, oh, that's yeah. Good. Yeah. I guess that might, did that take a year off your studies as well or it anything? It sure did. Yeah, I thought it might. A definite bonus. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, see ya, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could have got away with that. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I was like, yeah, we're done in three. I can't do a fourth. <laughs> oh, yeah, the fourth was, yeah. I, I, did, I mean, I yeah. didn't do nursing, but, I, yeah, the fourth yeah. year you're like, Right, I seem to be going over the, the same stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was my next question going to be? I was going to say, yeah, I think that's interesting because I think nursing, like from what I know about you, has become this really key part to like uh, to who you are as a human yeah. and yep. like really an important part of, you know, we were talking earlier about how you have, some pretty strong and valid opinions about things and that you, you just try and rein yourself in. Um, I do. <laughs> but I think, like, it's interesting you sort of fell into the nursing stuff. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's all, it's all design, isn't it? Like, you know, it's easy, I guess, you know, from where you are now to look back and go, ah, oh, you know, this was all meant for me or it's all part of some grand design or bigger picture. But, yeah, it really is quite serendipitous, hey? Yeah. Do you think mm-hmm. sometimes things are, like, when they're more easeful, like, you know, sometimes things are so hard but you're like, I should do them because I, you know, need to achieve in that area. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I actually have been wondering for myself lately whether that's, like, kind of actually a bit of a clue that maybe it's like not this way go that way kind of thing like I don't know I struggle with that one it's one thing I've never been able to figure out is it hard because it's supposed to challenge me or is it hard because it's the wrong thing and is it easy because it's my comfort zone or is it easy because it's where I'm meant to be yeah so that's one I'm yet to figure out so often ask myself that question Mm. yeah yeah so tell me about after you left uni where did you go um, so that's when I started my career at Knox Private Hospital. Um, and I think, I don't know if it is cultured or if it is that university mindset, 
or you know just the expectations and the way that they structure nursing training and progression professionally but I was very ambitious and I knew I was good at what I did I knew I was smart um, and so I, I did my graduate year where you rotate around and tried a few things um, and ended up in emergency and that's where I stayed and so I think I probably only held the same role or title for no more than two years at a time because I was on to the next the next the next yeah and so they offered an advanced practice program which is a transition to specialty training so I did that I think my second year in um, and I was always here's the twist so beautifully supported by the women in leadership at that hospital Right. So the unit manager who gave me the job to start with, she was amazing. And then another female unit manager took over. The clinical educator was a female and the director of nursing at the time was a female. And they all had my back. They offered me every opportunity. And I don't know if that's because they could see potential or if I was doing a good job or it was just luck of the draw. But I got offered every professional development opportunity you could ask for. So I did um, my postgraduate certificate in emergency nursing, I think my third year, um, which the hospital paid for, which was amazing. Um, and then after that, I developed an interest in um, clinical education. So again, the hospital paid for me to do my training and assessment certificate the following year. Um, and then after that, I pursued different leadership roles. So I went from registered nurse to critical care nurse to clinical nurse specialist um and then I diversified and started doing a little bit of clinical education um yeah so I started teaching at TAFE um doing like shoots and labs and stuff like that teaching baby nurses which I really enjoyed and that was sort of my foot in the door for um education experience and then the beautiful director of nursing gave me an opportunity for a secondment position as a clinical educator for um, the ward nurses. So that was a step out of ED um, to normal nursing. And I did that for maybe six months when a leadership role came up in emergency. So then I applied for that and went back to emergency as an associate unit manager, um, which again, I was supported by the unit manager there who was amazing. And, you know, so that's when I did that. That wasn't a fun job. I decided that, you know, management versus education, that was the deciding point for me, that I enjoyed education a lot more than that. And then, yeah, so over that time period was when it led into then I started to have kids and stuff. So that was sort of associate nurse, unit manager, maternity leave, unit manager, maternity leave. And then when I came back after having Lexi, um, the clinical educator who had supported me my whole career um, finally moved on after like 16 years. So I put my hand up for her role, um, which I wasn't ready for because I had like an 11-month-old at home yeah. and they expected me, like I was doing two days a week. They wanted, you know, I mean, more like seven or eight days a week, which the director of nursing, when I was successful with the um, application she said she would take me on at six days because she could see what a stretch it was for me um, so yeah went into that and that I think was the beginning on the back of having had Lexi um, and Ivy I guess I suppose as well both those experiences and then coming into that role 
was really the beginning of the person I am now and my understanding of the healthcare system as it is based on my experiences in that role, um, having been through what I'd been through. So, and then, you know, the compliant, do it the way the system wants, you know, striving, nice young lady nurse, all of a sudden was like, oh, this whole thing's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a real, like, I had a moment. I'd just got my job. I think I'd been there two weeks and I was overwhelmed with all the things to do. And all of a sudden I had this, like, awareness drop in that I was like, this is the private system and the one I was working in. I'm like, there is no governance. These doctors just do what they want, how they want, because they want. There's no rules. There's no one keeping score. There's no guidelines. And I was like, far out. Like I I had a moment, I was like, I can't do this because then in my head I just saw this huge pile of work that I had to achieve in order to fix the broken system. And so I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And I had a moment. And I took a moment and I was like, all right, just pick one thing and start there. And so that's yeah. during my years as the educator there, I just picked the next thing and started there and tried to establish some governance while figuring out how to teach baby nurses. And wow. yeah, really started my fight against the system from within. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So. Oh, where to start? Yeah, so you've kind of ended up in this <laughs> like, yeah. David versus Goliath <laughs> situation. So yeah. um, going back one step, which is, you know, you kind of, I mean, from that I can kind of kind of gather that um, re- returning to the system um, was different with, your entry to motherhood kind of thing. Mm. So I guess take us through that. Like how did you, because obviously you'd been with your partner for a while, it sounds like at that point because, yeah. yeah. So how did that sort of unfold? Like, um, well, I guess we, I was never the maternal type and so I was always like, do I have kids? Don't I have kids? I'm approaching 30, you know, all the things. Mm. And then it sort of just happened on its home, a series of events and then ended up pregnant. And throughout my pregnancy, I was, you know, the lady we were talking about earlier, I thought I knew better because I was educated. I worked in healthcare. I knew I was a nurse. I knew midwives. I'd witnessed births before. Um, But I was also aware that in healthcare that there are, just as well as there are really exceptional healthcare providers, there are also pretty shit ones. And I was really nervous of going into hospital and being taken care of by a shit midwife. And so for that reason, I chose to have a private obstetrician and go through the public system so didn't have private health insurance to cover it. Um, and so that was probably the beginning of my undoing, making that decision, because that was a decision that didn't come from a place of empowered information. It came from a place of fear and thinking I knew better I guess I don't know um so yeah throughout my pregnancy with Ivy which you'll love this will be a huge red flag for you which I didn't mean anything to me at the time I went to my first appointment with my obstetrician and they give you like the patient information booklet and read this and on the very first page 
Dr. Dickface does not condone the use of doulas or additional support workers. And I was right. like, I'm just a doula. Oh, well, sure, whatever. Didn't think anything of it. If I had read that You're now, like, it would have been like, I'm out of here. I'm yeah, see you later. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, you mean you don't, don't want know, someone who can help me or support me yeah. or advocate for me? Well, being supported in birth. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! I didn't know what a doula was, so no. I just read that, and I was like, "Oh, me means some sort of said, What's a doula? Oh well, I never gave it another thought, and then no. um, so I went through my first appointment with him, which was like the twelve week appointment. He lay down on the table and he examined my belly, and he was like, "Oh, you've got a bicornuate uterus," and I was like, "What?" He's like, "You've got a heart shaped uterus," which apparently he could tell by my physical examination, and I was like, "Okay, what does that mean?" Oh, it means you'll probably have a cesarean section. Your baby yeah. will be breech. And I was like, um, no, I won't. Because the one thing I knew was that I didn't want a C-section. I didn't know why. I didn't have any ideas, knowledge, awareness about it, but I knew that I didn't want a C-section because I think my belief at the time was we were designed to have babies. Why would I have it cut out? Do you know what right. I mean? It's what my mm. body's made to do. I just had that little... That was your anyway. feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from my first appointment, he was like, you'll have a C-section. And I was like, but I don't want one. And his response was, oh, it's an easy operation. And I'm like, yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah, you do 20 a week. It doesn't yeah, mean anything to you. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the rest of my care throughout the pregnancy with him was along a similar vein. I had to reintroduce myself every appointment and remind him that I was a nurse and I worked at the same hospital that he had clients in and stuff like that. And um, I had a few hiccups along the way, like uh, my pelvis fell apart and then I ended up having like Braxton Hicks from like 28 weeks and having to go on medication and off work and all sorts of just bullshit that really pushed you to your limit of coping with life when you're pregnant and don't know what you're doing. And then, of course, um, Ivy was breached and she continued to be breached for the whole pregnancy. Um, and his attitude to that was indifference, like it wasn't a problem because he's like, yeah, we'll just cut her out, you know. And so then um, I started doing a little bit of looking into breach birth because, again, I'm like, I don't want to see her. Um, and it got towards the end of my pregnancy, like I think about 36 weeks or something. Um, and I went, I took my friend because I knew I was emotionally unhinged at the time. And I had done my research and I compared the statistics of negative outcomes on breach delivery versus cesarean section. Um, and they were the same. So the, yeah. the, the likelihood of a, a fatal outcome with a breach versus a cesarean were exactly the same. And so I took that to his midwife and I said, yeah. I don't want to have a Caesar. Here are my statistics. Can we try this? Like, what are my options? And she told me, well, the statistics might be equal, but in the breach delivery, your baby will die versus a Caesar where you will die. Do you want your baby to die? Oh, my God. She said to me, and I was like, well, fuck, what pregnant woman's going to say? Well, yeah, actually, I picked me over my baby. So, um, yeah, that that's was crazy. It. Yeah, I that's know. crazy. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So we went through with the Caesar. Um, actually, he tried in one of my appointments before the birth that um, 
what do you call it, external cephalic version? Is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah, um, the e- ECV, as they call it. Yeah, yeah. One. Yes, which I learned Trying to palp her out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I learned after that he totally bullshitted me through that. So I went into his consulting rooms. I laid on the table. He went, eh, eh. Oh, sorry, she won't move. Now we'll put you on the monitor for half an hour in case we cause severe distress by attempting that. And then I learned later that ECV was actually a whole process with sedation and muscle relaxants and all this sort of thing. Yeah. So he lied to me, he manipulated me through that process. I guess and he then, was just you know, really keen for that C-section. Yeah, just and then the like... fear of, well, now that you've made me attempt this procedure, you have to sit on the monitor so we can keep an eye on that your baby is still safe, you know, so he made me sit on the CDG for half an hour um, after that. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So then, yeah, we had the cesarean section, um, and which booking that in was a nightmare as well. And then the whole process from being wheeled into like holding bay and then in theatre. I can feel myself. I'm getting hot and my heart's racing talking about it. Yeah, I can see (laughs) on your like people listening can't see, but I can see the way it's like all creeping off yeah. into the top part of you. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And so, but I approached that. I was, my focus was Simon because I knew Simon had a tendency to faint with blood. So I put all my energy into making sure he was okay. Oh, of course you did. We had a support yeah. person come. We made sure he was fed. We made sure the screen was higher so he couldn't see anything and all this sort of stuff. And then um, my focus was clinical because I'm a nurse and I'm a clinical, I'm an analytical person and I don't, you know, this isn't where I want to be, but I'm going to make the best of it. And um, the surgeon who didn't end up being the obstetrician I had kept, who had taken care for me ended up being just, hi, I'm Chris, I'm going to cut your baby out today. Oh, hi, Chris, you know, <laughs> it wasn't even the same doctor. And then he's like, do you like music? So he put on some music. To this day, I cannot listen to Rock DJ by Robbie Williams. Oh. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> oh, gosh. At um, least he wasn't really mean but yeah you want to put that song in the bin now yeah 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 and then so then I had a junior anaesthetist by me at the bedside and because I was so nervous about the spinal because that was the statistics that I'd done my research on um and so I completely detached from the waist down and I just chatted to the anaesthetist while they delivered my baby and you know where he was with his training and what his life was up to and blah 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 and really paid attention to like um, how I was feeling in response to the spinal and I was like I'm feeling a bit short of breath um, and that kind of stuff so just really not even present for the birth basically Um, and then of course Ivy was delivered, she was taken away the first time, like put on the scales and wrapped up and all that sort of stuff. And Simon had the camera. He went and took a picture of her. So the first of her I saw was on a photo, like he came and showed me while they were doing their thing. And then they gave her to me and, you know, you can just see the eyeballs when they're all wrapped up in the towel and all this sort of stuff and put her sort of near me. And I was like, ah! And they're like, what are you going to call your baby? And I remember looking at it and going, I haven't even met her. I can't even see her. How am I supposed to name her? I don't know what her name is. Yeah. And then 
And because then I didn't know that I had any rights or any choices in the delivery room and the midwife was having a hectic day. It was so busy on the ward and she couldn't stay. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, I get it. I'm a nurse. I know what your experience is. You go. But her going meant that Simon and the baby had to go. Um, oh, and so God. he went with a brand newborn. And then what happened was he just got dumped in the room by himself. Midwife had fucking nothing to do with him. Um, and mm. then I had, I was bradycardic, had a low heart rate after the spinal from the fentanyl um, and so I sat in recovery for two hours there's one person across the corridor from me and the nurse I know doing a crossword or something next to me and I'm like it's like to get to my baby though yeah I, I just gave birth apparently did I did that happen like where sure. am I oh. I don't know what's going on and so two hours later, and I still remained very detached in reflection, like I still was very clinical, very, it's fine, it's fine, we're all fine, um, and got back to the room and my mate who had come as a support person was just sitting in the waiting room and I wheeled past and I'm like, what are you doing here? She's like, you've been gone for so long. I didn't know if you were dead. No one came and told me anything. And I was oh, like, God. just come with us, come with us. So she came into the room and we just saw Simon there with this screaming baby. Like he was like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. No one had been to help him or tell him anything. He was just standing in the room with this baby. And then, um, yes, they got me over to the trolley. I think um, Amanda had a quick cuddle of the baby while I got sorted. And then I held my baby. <laughs> Oh my God. Like four hours later or some bullshit. And then onwards from that, like the next few days in hospital was just, you could write a book about it. It was the most disastrous fucking experience. Yeah. <laughs> Every single day it was so bad. Ended up discharging myself. Um, How many days so, in? How many days were you there um, before it you was were on, like? It was on like day four, I think. But mm. then there was like no support, no support, no support baby that wouldn't eat, baby that lost more than 10%. Oh, well, now you have to stay and we have to force feed her. And I was like, fuck this, I'm out, I'm out. You're yep. all, like, contradicting. Like, I'm just – I had to call my mate who was working in Darwin at the time, who was a midwife, to be like, what do I do? Like, I don't know what to do. And so yeah. she supported me. Um, and then, yeah, I was just like, fuck this, I'm out. We left. Um, and then moving forward in the weeks to months of her infancy were also challenging with lack of support, um, contradicting information. Nobody knew the answer. I think she, we had a lot of trouble with breastfeeding and I didn't know that a lactation consultant was a thing until she was two weeks old. There was one two doors down from my room in hospital, but nobody told me that. I told you. Oh, God. Yep. And so I guess if we go back two hours ago to your question, um, I come from, I believe in the system, I trust the system, we fix people, we help people too. Well, that was a total train wreck. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was a real, a real shattering to a million pieces, my belief systems, because it was just the polar opposite of everything I thought the system to be. Yeah. And, yeah, and fast forward six months and then um you get drunk at your best friend's wedding and wind up pregnant again <laughs> the universe was like there you are yeah <laughs> we're gonna sort Just this out this excuse one. me you go. yeah um and so <laughs> I think 
I was just so torn because I was so traumatised and I ended up, I think when Ivy was about five months, I wrote it all down and my cousin was the chief of the hospital at the time. So I wrote, took my letter to him and I went, this is was my experience, can you help me? And he connected me with the director of maternity services who just, I say accused because I was very opinionated about it, accused me of having postnatal depression, which in hindsight I probably did, but I, I wouldn't accept that. I wouldn't, like, no, I don't have depression. Like, you guys have just fucked me over kind of thing. And so it they could be both up. things. It doesn't it have to be, be one or things. the other. Like, yeah, I know, but yeah. the person I was at the time, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't fair enough. That yeah. mm. um, and so then they hooked me up with a counsellor in, I don't know, we're sorry, we fucked up. Here, see our counsellor for free. And that was so bad. It was so bad. The counsellor actually said to me, now don't feel like you have to tell me what's happened. I already know your story. And I'm like, isn't that the point? Why am I here then? <laughs> and so, yeah, it just made me feel so much worse. So we, anyway. Um, so, yes, we had a new pregnancy. And it was so funny because I remember, I remember taking the pregnancy test to Simon and he being like, oh, I suppose it's too late to do anything about that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you mean, yay, we're having another baby. Like we were both just like, fuck, oh, which is yeah. really a reflection of how horrific uh, our first experience yeah. was. And mm. so I was just like, I can't go back to hospital because it broke me. I don't know how else to have a baby. What else do I do? And I was just on Facebook and I know, thank you, universe. Um, on my feed popped up a post from um, Eastside Midwives about they were now starting to explore maternal assisted caesareans. And I thought, well, if I have to have another caesarean, I'm going to be a part of it this time. And so I went along to one of their meet and greets and that's where I met um, my midwife, Helen Barrington, and her colleague, Amy, um, and I just fell in love. Like I yeah. went with a friend and they were the right mix of compassion, warmth, nurturing, but also intelligent, which I really appreciated. Like Helen could tell my friend the potential reasons why she had premature rupture of membranes with her pregnancy when nobody else could. And I was like, oh. Chick knows what she's doing. Yeah. Well, some of that's probably that she was free to say why as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, So, yeah, I continued working with Helen and we just really spent a lot of time. I think I was probably 28 weeks before we decided which route through this birth we were going to take. And so because... I didn't have the private health insurance, but we were prepared to pay the 10 grand or whatever if that meant I had a bit more control, which we all know now that that wasn't, wouldn't be the case <laughs> um, because I had been burned by the public system. So that was a preference for me. Um, but I just knew that if I went back to hospital, I would have another cesarean and I just couldn't. I just couldn't. There's no fucking way I could have had another cesarean. And so we talked through all the options and Helen said, well, I know an obstetrician at Monash. Um, if you write him a letter and we'll, I'll get you a referral. And so then at least you're tied in with the hospital. And so I went and saw him and he was like, yes, given your history, 
like you had a baby very recently via cesarean section so uh, vaginal birth would not be my preference but I'm not going to tell you what to do you I in my opinion you're better off in hospital but you do you and I'm happy to take you on as a client should you choose to show up thank you very much he was awesome yes um and so then we decided that all right I've got that as a backup plan so we were going to pursue the home birth yeah because there's no way in hell I was going back to a hospital, which is really challenging for me because I work in a hospital, you know, I believe yeah. in the hospital system, you know, but I just, I couldn't. Um, and so, yeah, we went through the processes of preparing, planning and me being the, you know, analytical, intellectual overthinker, you know, catastrophizer. I had every conceivable I dotted and T crossed that you could think of. And, you know, Helen and Amy were so good. They gave you lists of things to prepare and contingency plans and all that sort of stuff. I even had extra scans to make sure that my placenta was in the right place and that it was all safe and Mm. all this sort of thing. Um, And, yeah, we had all our backup plans and all that kind of thing. And we had since done a lot of learning about, birth and your options in birth um, and the potential complications and intervention cascades and things like that Um, and that we knew induction wouldn't be an option for me because of the potential risk of uterine rupture Um, and so Simon had said you know absolutely support the home birth but if we have to go to hospital he said I can't support an induction because in my head that means you will die. Right. So it's either the home birth or a C-section, pretty much. And I was like, well, I'm going to fucking move a mountain if I have to to achieve this home birth. Um, And so I did a lot of learning. I did a lot of preparing um, and then, like I said, contingency planning and stuff. And what I didn't realise at the time, but I've realised now, is my midwife did a whole hell of a lot of mindset coaching. Yes. And she started me because I was like, well, it's me. This is fucked. Blah, blah, blah. I'm a miserable pregnant person. You don't, want, you don't want to know me when I'm a pregnant person, miserable pregnant person. Um, and so she started me on positive affirmations. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's such a wank. Like, you know, my body knows what it's doing. I was born for this and stuff like every push brings my baby closer. You can do anything for two minutes. And so I had my two besties who were so supportive and I was like, oh, she's making me do this positive affirmation bullshit. It's so wanky. I felt so stupid doing it. Um, so they started taking the piss. And so when they had drawn up this beautiful poster which lived on my fridge every single day and I said it every day and she coloured it in beautifully, I will not get a vaginus. <laughs> and that was my mantra. <laughs> It still works. (laughs) Yeah, I will not get a vagina because I was, you know, being so dismissive of this positive affirmation garbage. Um, And then she sent me another one that was, I will not die. And I was like, yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. Write that one down, say it over and over. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, and as it was, Lexi, pushed me to my absolute limit she went to 42 weeks yep and of course those last few weeks are the longest weeks of your life and I was cramping and I was uncomfortable I had my midwife over almost every day I was doing all the eating chili walking upstairs having way more sex than a pregnant woman should all the kind of things to try and bring on labor 
And then it got to like the 42 week mark and um, Helen had said to me, all right, we need to book you in at Monash for an assessment um, because it's 42 weeks, that's our deadline. Um, so she made an appointment for like 8.30 tomorrow morning. We're going in to assess the size of the baby, the baby's health and your placental function to make sure it's okay to remain pregnant. And that was me done. I was broken. I was defeated because I was like, oh, well, I'm going to have a Caesar tomorrow. I have tried every fucking thing that I yeah. can to get this baby out and she is not coming out. So that's it. I'm done. That's, it is what it is. And I was just defeated. So she was born at 4.30 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's that I don't know. Like that de- defeat thing sometimes yeah. ends up being like a yeah. a just release. Give it over to fate. Like just give yeah, it over to I give up. Yeah. I've let go now, yeah. and then like this, I'm done. Yeah. Just whatever, you know. Yeah, I can't totally. control this anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. The amount yes. of babies who've been born on the date of induction, uh, oh, you know, or yeah. the date of assessment, or whatever it's like there must be some really high (laughs) yeah statistic on that anyway yeah yep Um, so and yeah and so going through like from me going to bed defeated to not being able to sleep to having to get up with these bloody cramps that have been plaguing me for the last two weeks and this is bullshit and um and yeah I had to keep getting up because I kept having cramps and I couldn't sleep and then I was sort of walking around the lounge room and all of a sudden I was like hang on I checked my watch and I waited and I was like I'm getting regular cramps like every five minutes or so and I was like and from then it went from zero to a million in like an hour like by the time I decided that I was having cramps to like paying attention for probably 15, 20 minutes to confirm that I was like having regular cramps to going to wake up Simon was like an hour and I was like already panting and groaning and like, oh, I'm in labour now. Um, And it was full on because we'd done the whole, we wanted the pool and all that sort of stuff. So Simon spent the next hour frantically like heating up water and inflating pools and turning on music and lighting and all this sort of stuff and letting the midwife know what was going on. And Ivy woke up, so we gave her a bottle and put her back to bed and all this sort of thing. So it was a hectic hour for him and Paul. And I was just, I just, my body took over after that. So I think I was on all fours like just groaning and saying like get that water I need that water because for me water had been relief throughout my pregnancy I'd be in the bath or I'd be in the spa because I had a lot of pelvic pain and I like I knew I needed to be in that water and I had one minute where it got really intense really quickly and in my head I was like I can't do this for six hours like I I don't think I can do this And then, but in my head, that meant calling an ambulance, riding in an ambulance to Monash and having a cesarean section. So I was like, put that shit away. And so I was like, no, we are not going there. This is what you wanted. You will do it. And in my head, this is how I'm talking to myself. And my sister had had a baby only a few months beforehand. And I was like, if Becky can do this, I can bloody do this. Um, and then the positive affirmations started coming out. So I was yeah. like, it's only two minutes. You can do-. And then I was like, 
screw you, Helen. Like this actually worked in my head for the next few hours was like, it's only two minutes. You can do anything for two minutes. Every push brings your baby closer. And that was in my head. And that was my mantra. Um, And yeah, so then the midwife came and then the second midwife came and they were just fantastic. Like they snuck around in the dark. They had torches. They didn't touch me. There was very minimal coaching. Try sitting this way. Try moving that way. Stop growling. Start pushing, you know, that kind of thing. And Helen just had a Doppler that she put on my belly every half hour to check Lexi's heart rate, which was fine. And they really just didn't have to do anything. I, my, I just, my body just did it. And so I was in the water and I had Simon supporting me. It was so hot. My God, it was so hot. I remember just feeling so hot. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I think then she started, finally started to deliver because um, I had the membranes were bulging out. Mm. And so Helen said, oh, I think that's in the way. Can you try and tear the membranes so I just use my fingernail to tear the membranes and that what's the white stuff, the um, white cheesy stuff from the vernix, that stuff yeah. came out, which I believe is usually more common in earlier deliveries rather than 42-week deliveries, yeah. usually plutonium or something. And I remember Amy going, are you sure you're 42 weeks? Like there's a lot of vernix. And I was yeah. like, yes, I'm 42 weeks. I was like, what do you mean? Am I sure? <laughs> uh, Sorry, Amy. <laughs> and then, um, yes. And then she said later that after that, when she could see Lexi's head and how big it was, she was like, oh, yep, yep, yep. That's 42 Never mind. Weeks. Yes. <laughs> yep. We believe you. Yes. <laughs> um, and so Lexi ended up coming out with her hand beside her face. Um, And so that was the only time that Helen stepped in. She said, stop pushing for a minute. So she pulled her arm through. And then after that, she didn't touch me again. And I remember um, while she was down there, I could just feel everything. And I'm like, stop moving there. And I'm barking at Simon because he was ready to catch her. And Helen's like, he's not touching her. She's moving herself. And in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, she would be, wouldn't she? <laughs> like, that just seems so stupid. <laughs> and then I was okay with that. I can deal with the pain if she's moving herself. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, she ended up, um, yeah, Simon caught her and passed her through my legs and it all just went so beautifully. And then I sat and held her in the water for a little while and we caught our breath and all that sort of stuff. And then... Um, They'd set up my beds with sheets and stuff so that I could deliver the placenta on the bed. And so then I had to get out of that pool. And after pushing for, you know, it was only like a four-hour labour, but I pushed for probably nearly two of it. Yeah. That standing up and stepping out over the pool was the hardest step I've ever taken in my life. (laughs) You know, baby in my arms and a cord between my legs and all that. And then I was on on the bed and, you know, putting Lexi on my chest and she attached straight away, which was just, oh, because of all the challenge we had feeding Ivy, that was such sweet relief. Um, It was just wonderful. And then we didn't clamp the cord or anything. And um, then Helen started, you know, that kneading the belly kind of thing to get the placenta out and that hurt and I had been really well controlled really nice throughout the whole labor and Helen looked at me and she's like go on call me a bitch I know you want to and I'm like stop it bitch (laughs) um and then yeah delivered the placenta and that was 
that was really probably the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done was yeah. to deliver a yeah. um and then yeah once that was all done and dusted um we let the placenta attach for half an hour or whatever until we cut it which was so nice um and then I remember saying can I have some Panadol now like I'm sore <laughs> decided now's the time yeah, yeah. Uh, so funny um, and yeah, and so just to be like polar opposite experience from the first, like literally everything was different and opposite and I was so well supported and so well held and I, it gave me such faith in my body um, and what I was capable of and it turned out that Lexi was a 4.98 kilos so 20 yeah. grams off five kilos that's big baby yeah a head circumference was the maximum acceptable limit for a newborn head circumference kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> and you know my cesarean scar didn't rupture I didn't bleed to death I didn't have to have any intervention and it just really really taught me in the most visceral way what women are capable of mm. and how much the health system interferes with that. And yeah. so that was the person who came back to work as the clinical educator. Yeah, <laughs> right. I was before all of that. So, yeah. Mm, right. Massive, I mean, massive. it probably says something about the, the, um, the difference between um, birth as a process compared to um medical things that actually yes. need care or intervention or do you know what I'm sort of saying it's yeah yeah, yeah. it's a very it's different not, it's not a clinical process no. it's it's a human process and it's something that I think um, we really diminish the impact that giving birth has on women and their families because it was hugely um, beneficial and transformative for Simon as well, both yeah. experiences. Um, and, I mean, you could spend a day talking in, on the implications of how you came into the world on who you become as a person kind of thing as well. Yeah. But, um, like... It's, it's not, yes, sometimes people need support and, yes, sometimes things go wrong, but we've just made it so medical and clinical and it's just such a shame. It's mm. such a shame. Mm. Mm. So after those, yeah, pretty um, diverse experiences <laughs> and then you've just basically, like I think, you know, sometimes women look back at themselves prior to like, like we were talking about you in high school earlier mm. and just think me in high school or uni compared to who I am now on the other side of these mm. sort of uh, transitions, I suppose. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't remember who I was. Sorry. Don't know who that is. Um, no. How did you... Like, so then you went back, you went back to work sometime later, obviously. Yeah. And you said mm -hmm. that like really impacted how, so then you kind of, I don't know, what was the shift that then kind of, I guess, moved you towards now doing some of your own work with advocacy and, and mm. how did that kind of unfold? Um, well, I am... I'm one of those people who, you know, they say you get 
like we're talking about, if it's hard because it's meant to be or if it's easy or not, you know, what is it, that feather brick hammer sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Before you pay attention to the messages. I need the sledgehammer before I pay attention. (laughs) So I ended up being in that role for four years, yeah, maybe four years, and spent a lot of it cultivating awareness about hospital systems and because I was privy to a lot of the leadership side of things, which was really, um, I learned so much in those four years about how hospitals are run, about the policies, the protocols and the, the forces that go into that behind the scenes and why they are the way they are. And it's usually for the protection of the hospital rather than for the benefit of the patients. And I was working a bit more closely with doctors from a more informed and wiser, as a wiser person and with greater awareness. And so I could see a lot more clearly who they were within this particular system and that for the most part, they operated out of ego, um, which I really struggled with. So how is the way you feel about yourself and your insecurities, even a thing when it comes to the decisions you make about people's well-being. And I really recognise that to be true, that, you know, I don't know how to do it differently. So even though that might be better for you and I could go and get myself educated, I'm going to do it this way because that means I don't have to admit that I don't know better. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. And that's what I really started to witness and particularly in this hospital every single day because I used to go through and unpack all the patients and work with the nurses and say, tell me about this patient, what's their presentation, what's their past history, what are their investigations, results, and, you know, all the things. And every single day I would find that inappropriate care and management was being delivered, like the wrong diagnosis, the wrong medication, the wrong this, the wrong that. And there was no recourse for that. It was just like, oh, yeah. And it I is like, how it is. Yeah. It is how it is. Like, and then speaking up against that always landed me in hot water. Right. Not the people making the mistakes, not the people failing to improve their knowledge and skills, not the people putting people in harm's way, but me for being intimidating, undermining, belligerent, outspoken. All the stuff you'd spend so, your whole career not being because you were a nice girl yeah yeah Hmm. and now it was just yeah so I ended up and I guess like again in hindsight now again being older and wiser and having experienced what I've experienced um I was very fuck the system (laughs) in my approach and wanting to fix it and you're wrong and I'm right and no one's doing good enough and all this kind of thing. So, yes, on reflection, I was very challenging, probably person to work with (laughs) um, because it wasn't really coming from a place of love. It was coming from a place of I'm a person who's been damaged by people like you, you know, and you can't do this to people and you should be better. Um, and so, yeah, I fought and fought and fought and fought um, until I ended up pretty much going mad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it all, like, ended up having another complaint made against me and ended up in a disciplinary meeting and then all the things, like, 
you know, my life was a little bit falling apart-ish and, you know, still had young kids and Simon and I were having a rough time and all the things just the sledgehammer. Yeah. Um, So I took some long service leave and that was the first time that I had stopped and slowed down and been outside of life and the system. I just had four months and I didn't do anything. I went to my friend's yoga studio. I, you know, I just, I did nothing, um, recovered essentially from the last four to six years, I guess. Um, And then this one, I started going to the women's circle with you and learning a lot more about myself and, you know, what I stood for and all the things that have made me who I am and all that kind of stuff. and when it was when I was on my long service leave is when I came up with this idea, like I've been fighting the last four years to change the system to the point where it's broken me. Yeah. I can't change the system. Yeah. <laughs> oh, surprise. <laughs> it took me a while to realise that. Um, but and I was getting a lot of phone calls from friends at that time about my mum's in hospital, where do I take my sick kid, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh. I have experienced so many areas of healthcare and different roles over the last however many years that have put me in the perfect position to help people navigate the system. So I might not be able to fix the system, but I can empower the people who use it and speak up for them and let them know their rights and things and that they have a voice and they have a say and maybe a little bit that the system is shit and that doctors suck a lot of the time. So if I can impart that knowledge on the community, maybe I can make a difference to the system like the fantasy was that if there are enough people who are empowered and aware, similar to like what you're trying to achieve with your clients to make them informed, educated and aware entering the system with expectations of their doctors to do right by them, then ultimately that will weed out the doctors who or the systems that don't support them. So there'll be no choice but for healthcare providers to approach their patients holistically, listen to them and be mindful of their best interests. So that is the fantasy. If I can teach you how to work through this system from an empowered perspective, then you can't end up having the experience that I had. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. You're creating the the demand for the supply and not trying to change it the other way around. Yeah. 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 And so then, yeah, it took me a little bit of time to get over all my insecurities and develop that idea before I actually launched it as a business. Um, And I've been, well, it's been probably 18 months now that Patient Advocacy Plus has been a thing. Yeah. I've worked with... Um, a few different clients in different areas um, and helping them navigate the healthcare system, communicate with the system and the healthcare providers in an effective way so that they get listened to and heard and that they um, have better experiences through their acute care stay. So, Mm. yeah, I love it. It's really good. And I worked with a lady last year who she just rang me and she was late pregnancy and they were telling her that, you know, her baby was too big. She'd probably have to have an induction before her due date, that kind of thing. And she was really scared of that because she had a traumatic induction last time. And I was like, say this, do this, do that. It was a 20-minute conversation. She yeah. was like, all right. And then like three or four weeks later, she sent me a photo of a baby on her chest and she the message just said, all natural, all my way. Aww. And so 
because I told her what to do and what to say and how to handle her provider, she got what she wanted and it all went beautifully. And for me, I was like, oh, I can die happy now. Like, yes. <laughs> just, you took uh, your healing uh, and spread it around. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. 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 The epitome of what I stand for now to empower people to not feel so out of control and disempowered and vulnerable in the system so that they have a better experience and that their doctors have to listen and, you know, yeah. do better, do better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah. what do you think next? Are you, um, you said you're, you're sort of, um, like what's your your next white whale, I guess? Are you just are you going to extend on what you're doing at the moment? How does it look for you? Um, I think I want to focus on health system education because I don't think many people understand what it is that I do and I don't think people understand yet that they need someone like me because mm. people survive their hospital experience and they're happy. They don't realise that all the things that weren't done quite right or that didn't have to happen or could have been done so much better along the way, they just come out the other side of it so they're happy sort of thing. Um, so without people having already had a negative experience, they're not seeking someone like me. Yeah. So I think moving forward, I'd like to focus more on just health system education and awareness. So teaching people the nuances mm-hmm. um, in how to navigate the healthcare system and communicate effectively from an empowered position and just simple things like, you know, and because I work in emergency and I'm on triage and I see a lot of people being inappropriately referred to emergency um, and a massive failing of their primary healthcare providers to refer appropriately. And it's easy, just go to emergency because they can, the one-stop shop thing. Doesn't matter that our waiting rooms are exploding and that there are no beds and you'll be in a very dangerous waiting room for the next eight hours while, you know, it's, mm. it puts a lot of pressure on the system. So to be able to educate people to say, actually, the appropriate place for you to go is here. Your GP can do this or your physio can do that. Because people don't know. They just do what they're told. Um, and quite often I'm finding that the primary providers don't understand the system that they're a part of. So yeah. they don't know better to so just go to emergency or, you know, people get sent send off a referral for an elective whatever at the public system and then because it's so overwhelmed at the moment it bounces back um saying oh sorry you're not sick enough your referral has been rejected and but there are ways around that what are my other options and quite often um primary providers don't know what the other options or how to go about it this is just the way they've been taught to refer um or they make assumptions about what people want or are prepared to pay for their healthcare sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, just educating people about that and so I'm trying to pimp my social media so I get a bit more reach with that. <laughs> yeah, that'll um, be cool. Tell I'm me how you go. It. I'm always struggling with that. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of learning about social media and how to engage with people, um, So, which I'm finding um, in the last couple of weeks the slightly less reined-in version is getting better. Um, yeah. more attention, which yeah. is really interesting. Stop being mm. a good girl. Um, yeah, it's like a life and- lesson, a lifelong lesson. Yeah. <laughs> <Keep going laughs> Always peeling back the layers on that. Yes. And then I also want to work on teaching and supporting baby nurses because it's taken me 
15 years to cultivate my awareness of the healthcare system and the biases that we impose on people. Um, and even if you go back to your training at university, like they're things that become part of our belief system that we don't necessarily own. And, you know, it's the mental health patient that we don't take seriously. It's the chronic pain patient that we withhold pain killers from because they're probably just seeking drugs. It's, you know, it's the first time mum with a sick baby that we dismiss as just stupid first time mum who's not coping, you know, that is ingrained within us as healthcare providers that I want to break and create awareness from you know the early years in their career that recognize biases recognize where the system imposes them on people recognize where you approach your people with those biases like we were saying before you know you get taught to leave yourself at the door but you know I think bringing yourself and your awareness and your experiences makes you a better healthcare provider because then you can look at people like people and not just the appendicitis in bed two kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah I want to start teaching nurses um, and whether that it looks like an online course or something like that, just health system awareness, recognising biases and how to advocate for your patients. Yeah. Amazing. In a way that doesn't get yeah. you in a disciplinary meeting. Yes. You've, there you go. You've <laughs> learned that too. That's, yes. that's You can't learn this stuff without having to put up with it first. That's yeah. true. Yes. <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to start wrapping up, but this is so wonderful. Thank you for coming and talking yeah. to me. It's just, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I had even more notes and I had even more stuff to, but I just was like, um, I felt like this is one of those conversations that's sort of, um, you know, it's got so many beautiful little jewels in it, like mm-hmm. little nuggets of wisdom that you're able to share. So Thank you so much for coming and sharing. Thanks for having me. It's so nice talking to you. Thank you again for joining me today on Talks with the Feminine. And please remember that if you would like to connect with me or if you'd like some more information about Kate or anything else that we discussed today or if you have a story that you would like to share on the podcast, Um, you know, I would love to hear from you. I'm all about sharing women's stories, regardless of what form those stories take or what your life has looked like. Please, if this is you, reach out and you can find me at connect at talkswiththefeminine.com.au or if you would like to find me on my website, which is annietaylor.com. Um, make sure you check the spelling before you look that one up and I cannot wait to see you next time when I'm going to be talking to another amazing woman.